0: Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area. Call toll-free 877-924-7980.
1: Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Welcome to The Bible Line. If you are a first-time listener, for the next hour we will be taking people's questions either live or via a email here directly into the studio. You can email us at TBL, that stands for The Bible Line, tbl at net, or you can call us directly, and when you call you can either dictate your question or go on the air live if you're comfortable doing that, and the local number is 843 843- 525-1859, or toll-free for our internet listeners at 877-THE-CALL-LETTERS-WAGP-980. So, as always, uh, we're glad to be here today, Rick, and uh, let's go ahead and we'll jump right into the fray.
0: All right, Pastor. Uh, we did have a question that came up at the last minute of the last program we did, and you weren't able to give uh, satisfactorily Uh, A satisfactory explanation, so you wanted to hold it off till this week, so let's go to that one now. Uh, Caller says she appreciates your teaching in Revelation, and a few weeks ago you were talking about how God is not done with Israel. How is it that some believe
1: that he is? Well, that is a fantastic question, and it's really an important question to ask and answer, not just as it relates to the book of revelation, but really as it relates to the entire new Testament. So here's the issue that's at hand. And by the way, I'm going to cover this. So I'll just kind of briefly give you an answer today, but wherever this person is listening from, and we, we, we have people who are listening live stream at our website or via, uh, through Facebook, uh, in all different parts of the country. And many are very interested, especially in this revelation series, but, Uh, I will answer this in more detail later on, but here's the crux of the issue. Is the church the new Israel? That's the question. Is the church the new Israel? And so the thought that God was done with the people of Israel as a nation was really in many ways uh, put forth in an aggressive way by Augustine. There was a couple people before him, but for the most part, those who the one we call St. Augustine and Augustine, Uh, in many ways planted the seed theology for Roman Catholicism. The Roman Catholic church really in a full blown way said that God has done with the Jewish people, that the church meaning the Roman Catholic church has replaced Israel. And that's why they have such dogmatic uh, teachings such that salvation is only through the Roman Catholic church. Now they do acknowledge that people in quote unquote ignorance and other religions uh, can be saved uh, through the church in their ignorance, but salvation, they say, is through the church. The exception to that, of course, would be like a Protestant who protested Rome, who said Rome is in error on the issue of how a person is saved or justified before God, and such a person has, uh, who's uh, familiar with Roman Catholicism and has uh, outwardly, uh, pointedly, willfully rejected it, they're damned. Uh, so, I guess that means I'm damned. Well, in either way, because uh, I'm a former Roman Catholic. But they taught that they were in the new Israel when the Reformation came. And remember, there were always Bible believing groups of people. The gates of hell is, have never prevailed against God's church. So, very often we give the Reformation a lot of uh, press and. And rightly so in respect to uh, the contributions that they made to the body of Christ. But sometimes in doing so, we ignore other groups of born again believers who met, many of whom were persecuted greatly, many of whom who planted the thoughts and paved the way for the reformation to happen in the Catholic Church. But outside of the Catholic Church, God always had his people. But you had people within the institutionalized church, which for the most part was the church of the day who came to a recognition that um, the, that salvation was not through the church, and it was not by faith and works, but by grace alone through faith alone. So men like Swingley and Calvin and Luther and Melanchthon and so many others uh, came to know Christ as their personal Savior. And so with that said, a lot of them retained what I would call Catholic theology. They just put a different spin on it. So like most reformers, with the exception, say, of the Anabaptists, said that we should still baptize infants. They just put a different spin on it. Uh, Most reformers taught that the church is the new Israel, the church, however, not being the Roman Catholic Church, but those who have, through genuine faith in the Lord Jesus, been born again. And so the implications are great, and so there are some really hurtful, I think, anti-Semitic statements made by Luther, made by Calvin. People can try to, you know, whitewash those and say, well, they didn't really mean that. And no, they did. They meant what they said. They said what they meant. Those guys were pretty straightforward. And so they taught the church was the new Israel. So you got a guy like Calvin who tries to basically set up a theocracy in Geneva. So when Michael Seveltis is, uh, in his mind, is guilty of a theological error he wants him burned at the stake and he said use plenty of green wood and so the man was burned alive uh, you know we don't live in a theocracy Israel is not the church and the church is not Israel but God made some promises and this is the crux of it God made some promises that were unilateral there are bilateral promises in the Bible some that are conditioned on a person's response and god made some promises to israel that were bilateral if you do this and i will do this if you don't do this then i will do this but there were other unconditional promises that god made in the abrahamic covenant where god said no matter what i am going to bless israel that they are my people and god has not forsaken his people israel so again in every realm of theology Uh, How you view Israel affects how you think on other issues. And so like for Calvin, since the church was the new Israel, when he came to Romans 9, 10, and 11, he didn't really see it as the national section of the book. But he saw Romans 9 as God choosing some to go to heaven and others to go to hell. Uh, So his doctrine of election was not a national election, but a personal election. But really, the focus, if you read Romans 9 and you put it back in its historical context and the Old Testament references that he quotes from, he's not dealing with individual election in and of itself, but only to the extent that it dealt with the people of Israel. So, two children are in your womb, they represent two nations. And Malachi quotes, uh, references back to uh, Genesis 25 when he says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. In other words, he chose one nation over the other because Messiah couldn't come through two nations. He had to come through one nation. And so what you have focused on in Romans 9 is national election. In Romans 10, you're dealing with Israel's rejection. Why were they in unbelief when Messiah finally came? And Paul deals with that issue in Romans 10 why for the most part, the Jewish people rejected Yeshua as the Messiah. And then in Romans 11, he reminds us of a future restoration that a day is coming when the Jewish people will acknowledge Jesus. And so again, your eschatology, your doctrine of last things are influenced by your view of Israel. So if God's done with Israel, if there's no future to Israel, uh, in terms of the second coming of Jesus, then the way you interpret a lot of passages in reference to the second coming are going to be flavored. So you've got your R.C. Sproul's and your uh, John Piper's and your Alistair Beggs that are amillennial and their view of Israel. There's no coming literal thousand year reign in, in again, depending on the fine nuance of each of those three, because they're a little bit different. So I don't want to be unfair to them and their brothers in Christ. And I love them. And uh, I look forward to spending eternity with them. But the fact is, is they're wrong on Israel. So to say that uh, Israel is no different from Uganda is just wrong. That's gross error. God is a promise keeping God. And he made some promises to Israel that were unconditional in nature that he's going to keep. So God used the Jewish people to bring about the first coming. And he's using the Jewish people to bring about the second coming. There is great prophetic significance in Israel becoming a nation in a day on May 14th, 1948. God spoke of that time when he would regather his people, bring them back into the land physically, that half of the promise is being fulfilled. And then he's going to rejuvenate and restore them spiritually. So these are very, very important issues. And I will show you that as we work through revelation, we'll probably deal with some of these issues When we come, I think, to the eighth chapter, that would be a good time to address it. So hold on to your seat, and I promise I will answer it in much more depth as uh, we continue to work through Revelation. Good question. Let's keep going.
0: All right, very good. We just had a caller with two questions. Uh, First, when will the battle with Gog and Magog take place? And second is, um, if Joseph was not Jesus Christ's biological father, were the other children his half-siblings?
1: Well, um, there are basically. Uh, well, let me, let me deal first with the battle of Gog and Magog. I've gotten so many questions. I guess I opened a can of worms and just briefly mentioning this. So I'm going to address the uh, the issue of Ezekiel eight thirty eight and thirty nine this coming uh, this coming Sunday. So I'll address it in our dialogue. We're working right now through the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And uh, this coming week, we come and we deal with the third horseman. But to answer your question very briefly and quickly, it happens in the first half of the tribulation period. So the, the, the battle of, uh, with Magog is going to happen in the first half of the tribulation period. But just come Sunday and you can get a full answer. Uh, the second question they're asking, Rick, um, he, he also wants to know, he
0: wants to know is uh, if Joseph was not Jesus Christ's yes, biological so,
1: father. Yeah, so it's a good question, uh, and there have been a couple of different views that have been held in the history of the church. Of course, the uh, Roman Catholic Church believes that Mary was a perpetual virgin, that she never had any other children, and so they view um, the, the 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 brothers, so to speak, as cousins. And not actual physical brothers. So that's one perspective. The problem with that is you can make that argument out of the Latin translation of the Bible, but you cannot make it out of the Greek New Testament because God is very, very specific. These aren't cousins of Jesus. These are literal brothers. So there's another view that's held by the Orthodox Church. And without getting too technical, they basically say that Joseph had been married before his previous wife had died these were biological children from another marriage. So they acknowledge, no, these are uh, brothers in the sense that they are real brothers, so to speak, but they are not brothers in the sense that uh, they're half brothers of Jesus. The biblical traditional view that I hold to, because I think the scripture plainly teaches it, is that these are what we would call the half brothers of uh, Jesus in that uh, they have the same human mother, but they have a human father. Jesus had a human mother, but he had no human father. And so that's the difference. There's a huge difference there in terms of how you're going to understand that. So there's technical terms and theological terms, and I don't think that the Bible line is the place to run through that, but that's an excellent question. So they're the half brothers and four of the brothers are given names. The sisters are not given names, but they are referred to in the plural. So that means if there was four brothers, there's at least two sisters. So that's six children, which would make Jesus uh, as seven in a family of seven. He would have been the oldest. And you can see maybe why too, some of the brothers and sisters had some animosity for him at one point. I mean, Jesus was never... Discipline, like the other kids were, uh they never went through some of those challenges that the other kids had um because he never did anything wrong, <laughs> they never had to spank Jesus. Can you imagine that growing up in a family where Jesus was never spanked, and yet you are, and hey well you know uh and the mother says, "Well, why can't you be like Jesus? Well, I can't be you know <laughs> anyway uh it's 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 a good question. let's go to the next one,
0: all right, very good um. Uh, Let's see, we've had uh, a couple of other questions come in. Uh, Pastor Carl, you had said that uh, those who have heard the gospel in clarity and truth will not have another chance after the rapture, Uh, but a caller just called in and thinks that you mentioned a window of opportunity after the rapture. Uh, Who will this window of opportunity be for?
1: Well, I mentioned it in respect to uh, last Sunday. uh, The the next event on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. In the seven-year... Uh, period of time that we call the tribulation period uh, begins with the signing of a covenant with Israel that the antichrist is going to make. Now, how soon after the church is raptured is that covenant made? It's a good question. It's an important question. Well, the Bible doesn't tell us, but based on what we do read in revelation and the opening verses, Jesus makes it very clear that once the um, events uh, begin to take place, they will happen very, very soon. And so he says here in Revelation chapter one, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him, to Jesus to show his bond servants, that's us, the things which must shortly take place. The word shortly um, is the word "taxis." We get our word taxometer from it. It speaks not so much about the length of time, but the speed of time. Uh, you could say suddenly or quickly, depending on your English text, would be another way in which to render the Greek word taxis. In other words, you read that and say, well, wait a minute. He says these events are going to take place shortly. He wrote that 2,000 years ago. It seems like they haven't taken place shortly. Well, he's he's dealing with the, remember, the book of Revelation divides into three parts. The things that he has seen, that's basically after the prologue to revelation, the vision that he has of Christ all the way through verse 20, the things that are, those are the seven churches that are in existence. When John writes the book in 95 AB and the, and the things that will be. So when you come to the will be section, chapter four, uh, all the way through the end of the, uh, the revelation, that's futuristic. And by the way, this kind of gets back to the first question of the day in reference to those who acknowledge that there's no future for Israel, that prejudicially affects the way they interpret the book of Revelation. If there's no future for Israel, then how do you deal with the passages that deal with Israel in the Revelation? And so those people usually approach the book of Revelation through one of two lenses either what we call the preterist view of Revelation, praetor is the Latin word that means past. And so they basically say the book of Revelation is a history book. It's already happened. It it happened all by seventy A.D. The problem with that is if you just plainly interpret the verses of Revelation, then you have to super spiritualize and and rewrite what God plainly said when Jesus spoke. Um, and by the way, they do the exact same thing with the all of that discourse in Matthew twenty four and twenty five. They say all the events that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24 and 25 have already happened with the exception when he comes in the clouds in glory. And so the Preterist says that chapters 4 through 18 is all in the past, even some portions of 19, with the exception of Jesus coming on the clouds in glory. It's all history with the exception of Christ's second coming. That's that's just wrong because, again, when Jesus describes this period of time, he describes it as a very unique time in human history that is different from any time that man has ever seen. And unless those days had been cut short, no life, no life would have been saved. He said, for there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. How can you say that the events of 70 A.D., when... The Roman general, Titus Vespucian, fulfills that, that, that the horror that they saw in those days in the early church was a fulfillment of this. You can't. Uh, you, you cannot without really rationalizing what God has said. In Revelation 3 and in verse 10, he speaks to the church at Philadelphia, because you've kept the word of my perseverance. That's that's a mark that they are true Christians. I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. There has never been a time in human history where there has been testing upon the whole world. Even the great world wars don't begin to fit (laughs) this verse or even the red horse of destruction, the red horse of war and the four horsemen of the apocalypse that we studied last Weak. Certainly, you know, you had the Axis na- nations and the I- allied nations, and there was a lot of nations that, you know, said, oh, we're behind the U.S., but they, they never, you know, fired a bullet. And so while the list of allied nations are long, uh, geographically speaking in in actual reality, the world wars of the first and second world wars did not encompass the whole world ever. But God speaks of a time when he will take peace from the whole earth. In Revelation 3.10, he speaks of a time of trial that's going to come upon the whole world. And this is not just a promise that he made to take them from that time of tribulation to the church at Philadelphia. Because he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says, not to the church, but to the churches. This is a, a truth that any church can hold on to and grab with all their might. So when you come to Revelation 24, uh, I mean, Matthew 24 and 25, in the futuristic section of the book of Revelation, it's not history. Uh, And then some take what's called the historical approach to Revelation, where they say, well, it's being fulfilled uh, during the time of church history. So Martin Luther said that the Pope was the Antichrist. And he really thought that he was the Antichrist. He wasn't the Antichrist, obviously, uh, because, um, you know, Jesus hasn't come back. Martin Luther was wrong. Some accuse him of date setting on that. Martin Luther is a great guy. And I thank God for the things that he did do. But he was wrong on some things, especially, again, his view of Israel. So this kind of comes back to these same questions in terms of how we're going to understand them, how we're going to. Apply them and put them into shoe leather in our everyday practical life. Um, these are great questions, and if you will stay with me in the revelation, a lot of these questions are going to be answered in much more detail.
0: All right, very good. 843 525 1859, if you have a question on today's Bible line. And the listener from Winchester, Virginia, has a little bit of a lengthy question. Um, he writes, On your Community Bible Church Daniel sermon, Faith in the Furnace, um, you shared the personal opinion that reflects a believer's confession should be tested over time to determine if it is a genuine conversion, meaning a genuine belief in Jesus Christ. We used to call this fruit inspection to check perseverance of works, perhaps whether they are walking in the Spirit. So you indicated a false profession would be if the person fell away or did not endure to the end. You also mentioned the Rocky Soil Parable as an example. Now, Fellowship Bible Church in Winchester, Virginia, teaches in the permanency of new life and that the old man is declared dead at the new birth. The old man cannot come back to life. We are a new creation in Christ. Even if we fall away, he cannot deny us. John 3.16 tells me, That one must believe in Jesus Christ to have everlasting life. In John 4, Jesus never asked the Samaritan woman at the well to address her sinful behavior before drinking the water of eternal life. John 20, verses 30 and 31 tell us that these things have been written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Lastly, the parable of the seed in Matthew 13. Only one seed did not germinate, the one on the path. As I read this parable, we had only one that wasn't saved, the path, uh, because the word of God did not germinate in their life, for example, uh, any new life. Would you comment on the matter of eternal security of the believer who professes faith in Jesus Christ and why some want to measure true Christianity by perseverance? Also, Dallas Theological uh, Seminary professor, now deceased Zane Hodges, indicated in his book, The Hungry Inherit, that there is a distinction between the believer who drank the water of eternal life in John 4 by believing Jesus is the Christ and the disciple who is losing his life daily in the works of the Father. Would you comment on these two Christian individuals and what they may receive at the Bama seat?
1: Well, it's a lengthy question, and uh, but let me just see if I can respond. I, I did, and um, obviously you're listening to the Daniel series, and I'm glad you are, when the Protestant Reformers spoke of perseverance of the saints, they were not simply saying, once saved, always saved. Though so That was certainly implicit in their teachings. And I do believe that, that once a person is genuinely, truly saved, that they are saved forever. Uh, in my quoting of John two eighteen and 19, uh, John writes, Children, it's the last hour. We, we've been in the last hour, by the way, since the day of Pentecost. It's also called the last days. And that prophetically nothing has needed to be fulfilled since uh, Jesus ascended into heaven. All kinds of prophecy needs to be fulfilled for the second second coming. And just as you heard that Antichrist, referring to that one world leader, is coming, uh, even now many Antichrists have arisen. And so, yes, there's been false teachers that Jesus promised would come once the church was born. In the kingdom parables in Matthew 13... He tells basically what is going to happen now that Israel officially rejected him. The leaders, not all Jews, but for the most part, the majority of Jews followed the leadership of the uh, Pharisees and the scribes and so forth. And so because of their rejection and saying that Jesus had done miracles, not by uh, the Holy Spirit or by the father, but by the devil, Uh, They had committed an unpardonable sin. And so at that point, there was an official rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. So Matthew 13 is a very important passage because it answers the question in light of the fact that Israel rejected the promise of a kingdom, an unconditional promise that God made to them what's going to now happen. And so the kingdom parables really describe the inter Advent kingdom, what's happening between Christ's first coming and his second coming. And they're very, very important parables. And of course you reference here the parable of the sower. Um what what you're really telling me is that you are coming from what's called the free grace movement. But when John says even now many antichrists have arisen, one of the parables, one of the kingdom parables that Jesus gave was that just as good seed would be sown during this time Satan would go and sow bad seed and and so even now many antichrists have arisen we've seen the spirit of antichrist at work since the inception of the, the church from this we know we're in the last days it's the last hour and then he says they these false teachers they went out from us so at one point they were a part of them They came into the church, they confessed Jesus as Lord, you know, jumped through all the right hoops. But John says, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they were really true Christians, they would have remained with us, but they went out in order that it might be shown that they all are not of us. In other words, if they were really true, genuine, born again Christians, they would have persevered. So if someone comes into the church and says, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and then five years later rejects Jesus and follows Buddha, what would I say? I would say, no, not that he lost his salvation because once saved, always saved. But I would say he was never saved to begin with. Because if you have it, you can't lose it. If you've lost it, you never really had it to begin with. And so your understanding of the parable of the sower is really... I'm just saying this gently and in love, and I'm assuming you're willing to take it in that respect is just wrong. The first three soils are describing an unbeliever. And again, when you put the kingdom parables in the chronological order in which they happen, because they are obviously found in in Luke eight and in Mark four as well. But when you put them in the chronological setting, they come right after Israel rejects Jesus as Messiah. And so Jesus is really giving an explanation of why some people don't believe. And on the first three soils, he's describing an unbeliever. You reference here in your email to us. Well, the first soil is clearly an unbeliever. Well, I'm glad you see that um, because that's indisputable, but most would also take in the history of the church that the next two soils are unbelievers as well. And that these people are not real genuine Christians. And actually Luke Gives a fuller rendering in some respects. Remember, the Gospels never contradict each other, but they do complement one another. And so, in the first soil, the parable is this the seed is the word of God, and those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. So, you agree, that's an unbeliever. And those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no firm root. They believe for a while. And in time of temptation, they fall away. They apostatize. Why? Because they're not true Christians. But if you think this is a Christian who has been saved, then you have a misunderstanding of the word believe every time. And by the way, I read it from Luke 8 because only Luke uses the reference to belief. But understand every time the Bible refers to belief, it's not always saving belief in john 8 jesus spoke to some jews who had believed in him and a few verses later he will say you are of your father the devil i hope you don't think that that was genuine belief sometimes the word belief does simply refer to someone who gives intellectual assent the demons believe that god is one but tremble they affirm the shema hero israel the lord your god is one god that is a great theological statement In fact, every single time in the New Testament, when a demon is actually uh, given the opportunity to vocalize a statement, it's absolute truth. You are the son of God. That's a true statement that a demon made about Jesus. Was the demon saved? Obviously not. And then the third soil and the seed which fell among the thorns... These are the ones who have heard and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and the pleasures of this life and they bring no fruit to maturity. So yeah, there is a fruit test, so to speak. Um, How much fruit? I don't know, but there's some fruit. You will know them by their fruits. And so I think you have a misunderstanding the free grace movement, the free grace movement. You mentioned Zane Hodges and he was a professor at Dallas seminary. He was still there when I first attended DTS, but he left over uh, this issue. Now, is Zane Hodges a brother? Yes, he is. He, He was actually a very godly man and passionately loved the Lord. I think, however, he had a misunderstanding of justification by faith alone through grace alone. And so he did dichotomize, well, you can receive Jesus as savior and then later make some kind of, you know, discipleship decision to follow him. And that's a misunderstanding of discipleship. When Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples, he's not saying, go therefore and do discipleship. That's a verse that has been grossly misunderstood in the last 50 years, where people have quoted the great commission as it's referenced in Matthew 28. It's given five times in the new Testament And they say, well, Jesus is giving us a command to do discipleship. No, if I were to paraphrase that, I'd say, go therefore and make converts. Because the idea of a disciple is that of a convert, not just of the Jews where he gave the limited commission. And so about 450 years ago, we started calling this the great commission in deference to the limited commission. Initially, the commission was to the apostles. Don't go into the way of the Gentiles. Don't go and preach to the Samaritans go only to the house of Israel. That was a limited commission. But now that uh, Israel had officially rejected Yeshua and God is a promise keeping God. And so he wanted to highlight his promises to Israel. But now that they had officially rejected him, he extends the commission. Now go to all ethnoi, all nations, all peoples, Jews, Samaritans, Greeks, every ethnoi, every ethnicity on the planet and make disciples. What do you do with new disciples? You baptize them in the name of the father, the son, and the Holy spirit. What else do you do? You teach them. Now that process is discipleship, a word that never appears in the Bible, but the concept of growing and training people up in the truth of the word is one that's plainly found. So the, the free grace movement, and certainly Zane Hodges was one who spearheaded that movement fails to really ask and answer two critical questions. Number one is repentance from sin, uh, which is that a a real component of real faith? And then secondly, do good works um, give a demonstration of saving faith? And so he fails, I think, to understand the principle of salvation by uh, faith alone. You know, the reformers would teach. You can't find a single reformer that actually says this. We often credit Calvin, but I have all his commentaries. I've read his institutes. He never, you can't find a direct quote by him on this. And if you can, show me. Uh, There are some writings he did in in French, some that have been translated that I've read. um, But the concept we are justified or saved by faith alone but the faith that saves or justifies is never alone is something the reformers taught under the doctrine of perseverance. In other words, if you really are saved, then there'll be some demonstration of that. They were not denying that a genuine conversion produces real fruit. And again, the, the free grace theology movement as it's often called is often called um, doesn't understand the genuine Meaning of repentance. In other words, can a person say, Well, I want Jesus as my savior in the sense that I want forgiveness, the forgiveness that he offers, but I don't want to change my life. I want to just be a rebel and sleep with women and get drunk. And, you know, what a tragedy we had in our nation yesterday. And what was so sad is that many people were looped and drunk, as I heard some of the uh, people. Uh, give testimony on the news, just out and out drunk when they were shot, and how, how very, very, very sad. Um, but the free grace movement ignores that that repentance is implicit in faith. So you quote some passages from the Gospel of John. It is true that never once in the Gospel of John does the word repent ever appear. It's not there. But the concept is when Jesus encounters Nicodemus in John three, the concept is implicit that just as the children of Israel had to change their mind and look at the brazen serpent, those who did not look did not change their mind and they rebelled against the commandment of God and they died in their sin. But those who were willing to look to God's provision lived and then of course John three sixteen follows the illustration and so here's the thing while John's gospel is a gospel that is written that you might have life and that you might have eternal life it, it genuine faith in Jesus um when you come to him, you're acknowledging that you're a sinner and you need forgiveness. And if you really are willing to say, I want forgiveness, then you're willing to call sin, sin. What do you need forgiveness of if it's not wrong? So do you technically have to use the word repentance in a gospel presentation? No, you don't. Uh, It's never used once in the gospel of John. And yet that's the only book in all of the new Testament who tells us its explicit purpose is that men might find Christ. Many other miracles he did in the presence of his disciples, which were not written in this book, but these have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. So he tells us this book is written explicitly so that people can find genuine faith in Jesus. Um, but then you can't ignore the other passages at the Great Commission as it's recorded in Luke's Gospel, for instance. He says, Thus it is written uh, that Messiah, that Christ, should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. That's what the scriptures prophesied in the Old Testament. And that, notice, repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. So again, genuine faith has um an aspect of repentance implicit in it and again the position that you are espousing and i don't want to say this is what your church teaches i don't know anything about your church because people tell me all the time well i heard you believe in such and such and i said no i don't believe in that never taught it so i know what it's like as a pastor to be falsely accused but the free grace movement um And again, do I believe in free grace? Of course, I just don't believe in an abuse of free grace has no real way to um, give genuine assurance of salvation. Assurance of salvation is given on three levels in the New Testament, not just on the finished work of Christ alone. And again, I think guys like Zane Hodges, you know, they saw that. Uh, the Lordship salvation movement had really muddied the waters that Christ's death was sufficient where people made repentance, some issue where you clean up your act to come to God. Now you can't clean your act up to come to God. Um, You're a slave of sin and only Jesus can save you from that sin and free you from it. But when you come to Christ, if you're really willing to acknowledge your sin is wrong and it needs genuine forgiveness through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ alone, then He will clean up your act. But if repentance or genuine faith brings about good works, um, if you know there's no good works, then how do you deal, for instance, with the Book of James when he says, um, you know, he, he goes through and he says, you know, he gives he gives an example and he asks the question, can that man's faith save him? And the free grace movement would probably say, yes, because good works don't matter. Well, they do matter. They're in evidence. And of course, they'll come back and say, well, how many good works does one have to do to have assurance of salvation? I don't know, but some, uh, there's some evidence and we'll get to heaven someday and we'll be surprised, I'm sure, over who's there, who maybe we thought was not going to be there and who's not there, who we thought really was going to be there. So, you really have to manipulate a lot of passages in the New Testament. John MacArthur tried to deal with this, and he wrote a book about 30 years ago called The Gospel According to Jesus, and I think he did a follow up. I think it was called The Gospel According to the Apostles. Um, and it was really in reference to the free grace theology movement. Now, do I believe in free grace? Of course, so does John MacArthur. But the grace that saves is never alone. If you really have met Jesus, your life changes. And one mark of genuine conversion is perseverance. You don't disown Christ. Anyway, that's a, uh, a good question. I hope that's helpful to you. I want to really challenge you to think your way through this.
0: All right. We've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line.
1: Hello. How are you today? Are you there? I think we lost. Really good. Time. Yes, sir. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Thank you. Okay. Um, like you, Pastor, earlier in my life I attended Catholic Church,
0: and just I'm just thinking back on that, and it just seems to me the fundamental difference between Protestantism and, and Catholicism is sola scriptura. And I'm just wondering if I was correct in that assumption, because it seems like they don't base everything solely on Scripture. They hold sacred tradition in just as high esteem as Scripture.
1: Well, it's a good question. And, you know, there were five solas to the Reformation, which we have on the stained glass window uh, behind me that I preach every week. And so you really can't remove one or say this one's more important than another. They're actually all intertwined. But you're, you're right. And that if you do not believe that Scripture alone is the final authority, then you can certainly bring in other doctrines. And so it is true that the Reformation challenged the Catholic theology that tradition or when the Pope spoke ex cathedra in an official capacity, because they would acknowledge that not everything that every Pope has said is true or right or necessarily official Catholic doctrine. But when the Roman Pope speaks ex cathedra Latin for from his chair, from his throne, on an official matter of faith and morals, then that doctrine has the same authority as the Bible itself. And so here's one of the challenges, is that this is why you can't remove the other solas like sola gratia, sola fide, grace alone, faith alone, because they're all intertwined. So the Catholic church teaches what's called the magisterium. The magisterium is the official teaching arm of the church. And so they would say, well, yes, the scriptures are authoritative. And at least uh, you're on better ground with some Roman Catholics than you are with, say, some liberal Protestants. Catholics don't deny the authority of scripture. The problem is, is that they say it's not the only authority. And the other problem is, is that they teach that only the church can officially interpret it for you. And this is why, really, for centuries, Catholics were basically discouraged from reading the Bible. Why? Because they can't understand it. The challenge they ended up facing is when a Protestant created a translation of the Bible called the Living Bible. And a lot of Catholics, because the way it was marketed, got their hands on it. They said, mm, I, I like reading the Bible. In fact, there is a Catholic edition of the Living Bible uh, that includes not just the books that the original um, author put in them, and uh, meaning God and the one who translated them into a paraphrase. But they added the intertestament books too and dispersed them through their edition of the Living Bible. But if the church alone can interpret the Bible, then it really doesn't matter what you think about the Bible. What matters is what the church interprets concerning the Bible. And so, one of the doctrines of the Reformation was called the priesthood of the believer. And encompassed in the priesthood of the believer was not only the aspect that you can go directly to God, uh, not only the aspect that you have a ministry like a priest, because every church member in the body of Christ has been gifted by God to serve the Lord, but that you can actually study the scriptures. Now, the reformers didn't discount that God raised up shepherds, that God raised up people with the gift of teaching, with the gift of pastor teacher. Uh, John says you have no need of anyone to teach you because you have the anointing. Well, John is teaching me that when he says that. So, but what he is saying is that you have the Holy spirit. Who's your ultimate teacher and that he helps you to understand the scriptures. And so oftentimes I'll say, well, you're a thinking person. And what am I saying among other things? I'm, you may not know it, but I'm saying you can study the scriptures for yourself and you can understand them for yourself and the Holy Spirit will be your helper in that process. So there's a lot of issues that are involved. Um, but certainly if you have any external source or authority, which is what you kind of have, Not just in the official statements of the Pope, but also in their view of who can understand the Bibles. Now now you've got an outside official interpreter. And certainly men have mishandled the scriptures. And people have come up with interpretations that no one else has seen in a few thousand years. And that's why... It's a good rule of thumb. If it's new, it's not true. If you've come to understand something that no one else has seen in 2,000 years, there's a good chance maybe you've misunderstood the text. So anyway, it's a good question, fair comment. Let's go uh, to the next one. I think we have some more that have emailed. We do, and
0: uh, this is a rather lengthy but a heartfelt question. Uh, Kim writes, uh, my question is on alcohol. I know what the Bible says on it, and I fully understand the The looted state of the wine in the Bible. My problem that I can't seem to get around is the pattern that has been developed in my relationship with my husband and daughter with drinking wine together. My husband and I for sure, and occasionally daughter, she's 26. Anyhow, I want to break the pattern. I want to truly never drink again, and I can't seem to maintain a faithful walk of this. It's places we go. It's in the home, which my husband won't get rid of. It's a relationship connection in a sense. I've struggled with this for many, many years now. I never drank much at all and despised it. We, my husband and I, were around it so much with his work. He's in sales. And in the last two years, it's become so very much more of a pattern for me, for us. I'm so discouraged, I find myself two people, strong in the committed in the morning, and as the day goes by, my conviction dissipates to breaking, not every day, but certainly enough to make it a pattern of one who is not overcome. I love my Lord and have been a Christian for 32 years. He's been everything to me, my life, my breath, everything. I am so defeated because I want to please Him with my life. I, I want Him to count on me as one of His. He can trust and, in- and entrust. I feel I've wasted time and resources in the past years, far more than I'd like to admit, as well as not caring for the temple he has given me. I certainly don't get drunk, but the amount of wine I drink causes me to feel the effects of it. Thus, I guess that is drunk. I'm not sure. What matters mostly along with that concern is because I'm conflicted with my soul and I feel I just can't get out of this awful pattern. My husband is uh, supportive of of me not to drink, but we find ourselves going out, having wine, having it in our home, etc. He'll support me, but I'm not strong to say no myself. Sometimes yes, often no. Oh, please suggest some help. I want more than anything to please God. He's delivered me from the domain of darkness. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, but I... I, I change, not, um, but I have found myself peering into the darkness as I drink wine more and more. I'm not sure if I should go into rehab. I feel it's just a pattern uh, change, not really a detox. I, I drink maybe two to three glasses at a time, four times a week. So really, it's 12 glasses a week, which is so much more than I have ever drunk before. I used to hate it. Now I find myself seeking it out. Well, enough said. I I would really appreciate your good counsel and instruction. Blessings to you all, and I pray I'll email you all again one day and say I've been obedient and alcohol-free for years. Oh, I have gone to AA a few times, and honestly, I really appreciate the brokenness and truth there, but sometimes it's a trigger for me, and also I just would rather substitute it for strong Bible study, which I am starting soon. It's just, though, a daily accountability I have to have in order to maintain a change. I am discouraged.
1: Well, I appreciate the spirit behind that question because what you tell me in the back of your mind is I want to do what's right. The good that I wish I cannot do, I do the very evil that I wish not to do. That's the struggle of the believer, and that's really what you are vocalizing in this lengthy email that you've sent us. Sounds to me like you've read the article I have on my website. It's called Wine Drinking in New Testament Times is by a guy named Robert Stein. That's easy to remember, Stein, like a beer Stein, but he's actually not a different spelling, obviously, but he's not in favor of alcohol. The article that I have on my website, and there's other theological, uh, more uh, detailed articles, but I put that one up there because it's written on a very popular level without extensively quoting the Hebrew and the Greek. A lot of the best articles are written Uh, to those who have a knowledge of Hebrew and Greek. So anyone could read this and they can grasp the meaning of it. Interestingly, it appeared in Christianity Today in the 1970s. I think it was 73. Don't quote me on that. But it was in the 70s, the early 70s, Robert Stein's article on wine drinking in New Testament times. Basically, the thrust of the article is that drunkenness is wrong. Most Christians don't debate that. The point of Rob is, is drinking wine or beer wrong because God forbids two things in scripture, one, the use of wine and two, the use of strong drink. So what is strong drink? Well, you mentioned you got a grasp that they would take the wine and they would dilute it. And they would because Jewish people don't want to be guilty. At least those who are trying to be pious Jews and obey the scriptures, even today, they don't want to be guilty of using strong drink. And so the Talmud, which was, Um, basically a set of writings that express oral traditions that were sent for centuries um, when they were written down, not wanting to be guilty of using strong drink. It gave specifications on how to mix the wine with the water. Does the Bible teach total abstinence in the truest sense? No. And so I've never said that the Bible teaches total abstinence. If you will listen carefully to what I say, Wine could be used, for instance, it can be used uh, as in the parable of the Good Samaritan as an antibiotic of sorts or really as a germ killer, where you would pour the wine on the man's cuts, that would clean the germs out and then put oil over it. That was kind of the Band-Aid. It could be given to a dying man. Give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to him whose life is bitter Let him drink and forget his poverty. Let him who drink, let him who is perishing, drink and forget his poverty and remember his trouble no more. He's speaking to giving strong drink to a man who's dying. Just like today, we give morphine as an act of mercy, as an act of compassion to a man who is dying. And so he's not saying, well, just give a strong drink to somebody who's poor. He's speaking of poverty of life. This, these are um, connecting statements all the way through the book of uh, Proverbs, where they're balancing statements. And you'll see this dozens and dozens of times over. But what you're really saying to me is, how close can I get to sin without sinning? So you're drinking, you know, four glasses, three or four glasses a day, 12 glasses a week you've got a problem, and you and your husband have got to get on the same team. And you know, people say all the time, "Well, I can stop. You know, I'm not a slave to it." Then stop, quit, quit for the next six years. Just show me how strong you are. Uh, listen, uh, why do you drink? Well, it relaxes me. It it gives me a buzz. That That's basically what you said. I, I get a buzz from it. Well, maybe I'm dr- not drunk. Well, maybe I am drunk. Well, yeah, I, I, you know, the greatest commandment is to worship God with your whole heart mind and soul. And so God wants you to worship him with your mind. And when you're buzzed, you're not able to keep the greatest of all the commandments. Therefore you're breaking the greatest of all the commandments. Not to mention you're setting a terrible example as a couple for your daughter. You've given her permission to go out and go to the bars and party and buy your wicked example. And you guys have got to get on the same page and say, look, we're wrong. What we're doing is sinful and we are leading our daughter astray and down the wrong road. And so you just need to stop. You need to recognize it's not how close can I get to sin without sinning, but how far away from sin can I be? That's the spirit that you really want to have. And so when the Bible speaks of prohibitions concerning strong drink, it's not speaking of the distilled liquors that don't come until a thousand years after the Bible is completed. No, strong drink was just fermented wine or beer. It was a blessing in that it was used to purify water, but you didn't drink it straight because that made you buzz, That made you high and, and could make you drunk and God doesn't want you to use it. So you got to make a decision here. I don't necessarily think you need a rehab unit, but you might. And there are some Christian rehab units that aren't detox units, but they are for Christians who want to live clean, where you make no provision for the flesh. And so for you and your husband, that means getting rid of every liquor bottle in the house, never going to a bar again because it's too big of a temptation. or I don't know. It means different things for different people. But you got to get on board here and you got to get on the team so that you don't waste the rest of your life. Feel free to call me and set up an individual appointment.